Greetings, everyone. Welcome back uh, to another episode of uh, Politics as Usual. I say it like that, by the way, for everybody. Um, it's Jay Z song, very well popular known. Uh, Rock Nation hasn't gotten back to me yet uh, about using the, the the music in the intro, so but it'll work out. Oh, uh, oh, give me a call. Um, we've got another special guest this week. We always have a special guest on this show, actually. As a matter of fact, only people who are special, only exceptional human beings, um, come on the show. Uh, and we have one this week. We are here with the wonderful Karis Benke. Please tell me I said your last name right. <laughs> no, you got it right. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Uh, Karis, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Um, I'm enjoying the weather out here. It's rainy, my kind of weather. Yeah. Um, I'm just living life in a pandemic. I'm feeling good. All things considered, not too bad, right? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> uh, what's here right now, if you don't mind me asking? Is that like working or something? What's what? Sorry. You said you're enjoying life here. Is that what is here right now? Is that Oregon or something? Oh, sorry. Yes, of course. Um, no, here is out in Portland. Um, I am currently unemployed um, and I'm enjoying it, actually. <laughs> I worked on the campaign and that tore me down a little bit. So I am taking the time off enjoying the Pacific Northwest, spending my time outside when I can, socially distanced, of course, um, and just trying to breathe. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I've been inside so long. I've been working so long behind the computer. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to kind of restart. Yeah, no, that's not good to hear as far as the campaign beating you down. I'm sure we'll get more into those types <laughs> of conversations. Unfortunately, that is a very common uh, thread across campaign work, but for those of you who, who don't know, which is probably most of you all, um, Karis and I had the pleasure of working with one another last summer at this point, or the summer before last, whatever the proper terminology is, 2019. Um, and, um, you know, I had the pleasure that summer to work with a variety of, I mean, I don't want to call you all just wonderful organizers, just people who, you know, I guess it's, I sound like an old guy saying who provides <laughs> like so much uh, hope and optimism for the future because like you know we're what four or five years apart but um and uh so that honestly remains one of the you know more quality um professional uh sort of experiences in my life so um and that was with an organization called organizing core which was an extension of the democratic national committee um and uh really focused on just putting organizers training organizers uh for the presidential election um, which ended up uh meaning everyone worked on uh, on the campaign or on behalf uh, of uh, the president-elect Joe Biden, which uh, I'm sure we there were some feels uh, about that. We'll come back to that conversation, um, but to sort of get things rolling, because this is the most I want to talk throughout this entire thing. Um, Karis, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, so like Fred said, my name is Karis Benke. I am 22 years old. I just graduated undergrad where I studied geography. Um, which I'm sure we'll talk about because I love to talk about it. <laughs> um, I am really an outdoorsy person. Um, I hope that kind of supersedes me everywhere I go. It seems like the one thing uh, everyone knows about me if it's not that I love maps. And uh, I, it's just kind of where I get my real connection. It's where I get my passion for the work that I do as well. Um, and yeah. 
I am at my <laughs> brother's house right now. Uh, if, you, if anyone watches the video, you can see all of the wonderful, glorious plants behind me. And this is what I want for my future in about five years. <laughs> lovely, lovely. So you're going to settle down in Oregon and just make it a utopian for progressive liberalism. That's exactly what I'm hoping for. <laughs> amen. Amen. We need more of that. I, you know, I, it's good because there's a balance, right? I feel like I'm supposed to like settle down in like Arizona, Texas or North Carolina and just keep fighting crazy right wing people. Um, and then we've got other folks who are going to just go make Oregon more like the Netherlands. So love it. We need both. Um, you mentioned a lot of stuff in there like I want to unpack. And one of those is just I definitely don't have the same affinity for maps that you do um, or the same like sort of technical educational background. Um, but I do stare at nap maps sort of all day to the extent that I know exactly where like Interstate 10 starts and ends. Um, but yours is probably a little bit more, <laughs> you know, geographic based. I'm just curious, especially for someone who, you know, does uh, have a lot of knowledge, experience working within sort of like campaigns and organizing structure. Um, I guess first, where does sort of that affinity and that interest um, for maps come from? And then like, how has that helped you, you know, in your professional work thus far? So like I said, I love that everyone knows that I love maps <laughs> and like anyone I meet who <laughs> uh, gets introduced by someone else that I know, like common friends, uh, they're always like, oh, you're like the girl who really likes maps. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, that's good <laughs> enough for me. Um, so I don't know if you've ever, if you watched West Wing, but there was this episode where this group comes to the White House and they bring a, like a, a map, the common map that we all use for the world, which is called the Mercator projection. And they were like, this is actually completely false. Like we've proven it. This map has just been around for about 300 years. It's pretty racist. Um, but we just keep teaching it because no one wants to change it. And I watched that in high school and I was like, what, like, <laughs> what do you mean? It's just become the thing we teach because we're too far gone. Like that didn't make sense to me. Um, but if you haven't seen that episode, highly recommend. I love the show. Um, but then I went to college and I was like, I'm going to study politics. I'm going to study environmental studies. I'm going to merge the two. I'd never heard of geography as a kind of path of study. Um, and I hated our political science department. It was very white, very conservative, very straight. I wasn't getting what I wanted out of it. I mean, I went to school in Georgia, so, you know. <laughs> um, Good description of the entire But then state. I discovered geography. <laughs> exactly. Hey, we're trying to make changes. Um, but then I learned about geography and it just like totally changed my life. It was the most, I guess you could say like cross-sectional, intersectional kind of study that I had ever been a part of where you could take the data and you could take the science and merge it with the humanities perspective of like, what are the real life impacts of, you know, climate change or pollution in this area? And I think that was something that I didn't get from my science studies before where you are just studying the data in the science and you never really learn the impact of it. And that can be a deeper conversation for humanities versus STEM, excuse my dog. Um, but I think really getting that um, education there like kind of just set me off. And I'm a very visual person. So being able to see multi-dimensional data, you know, right in front of me, it's easier to comprehend, it's easier to share. You're not lo just looking at tables with people. Um, and I think that's super, easy to talk about that transition into organizing and into politics because there's so much data out there, especially like if we're talking about the Democratic Party that could help the party progress if they 
you know, really took that approach and did more than just like hire white organizers to knock in white neighborhoods. And we're like, <laughs> hey, you know, we have all of these people that would actually want to be part of our party if we stuck to our word and we actually like went out and talked to them, but we don't because we have that data, we just don't use it. And so, I don't know, I think <laughs> there's a lot of steps that we can take um, to to use them more in organizing. I think that answered your question. Yeah, no, no, um, definitely. Let me know if you have any follow-ups. <laughs> definitely, and and I think you know that that makes too much sense. And anything that makes too much sense just is just you know really complicated and nuanced and too difficult to get going in America. Um, to that, and I think you know, I there seems to be a lot of, I think, jump to conclusion to be honest about sort of data points and analysis from this past election. Um, you know, it's, it's just a little over a month has passed. And I see people like Nate Silver and Dave Wasserman and all these other folks who try to sort of immediately offer data analysis on this kind of stuff. And I didn't really realize just how siloed their opinions were until they, until this year, right? When Georgia became, you know, a battleground state, a state that everybody had their, their focus and attention on and state I've worked pretty heavily in politics and I'm like these guys don't really know what they're talking about <laughs> to be totally <laughs> honest um when you look at this year's electoral map and some of the more surface level just data points that there are um if you were running you know a well-funded national organization on behalf of progressives you know what would be two or three you know pertinent points you would give them to take a look at as far as moving forward looking towards 22. Well, I want to start with the idea that the Democratic Party, at least in some states, really thought that white women were going to be the people to go after. Mm. Clearly, we were not. <laughs> it was definitely Black women and Indigenous people that really delivered. Yes. Um, which is a whole other conversation that we can have. But I, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier, where if we're having white men be hired on as consultants to look at data points, they're going to say things like, we need to you know, go after white women because it's easiest and it's because they don't have to deliver on as much. Not that the Democratic Party has, in my opinion, been delivering on a lot, but to say that. It, it's the easiest way out, you know? And, and it, it almost failed us. And if it weren't for black women and black youth, we would be stuck, especially in Georgia. Um, so that is my first part um, going out. I would say, and I, I, I wrote this down to mention that I have a huge problem with going out every two to four years and we're knocking on doors and saying, hey, like, please vote for our candidate. And then they say, why? And I'm like, I wish I could tell you because as soon as you, you know, check the box, they're not going to come back. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't have a good answer for you. And so I think we really need to break down coming back and delivering to our voters so that they maintain or so that we can maintain our voters because after this election so the conversations are already starting where they're like I'm not going to come out to vote for you anymore uh -huh. like I save your butt you know for this year but I'm not doing it anymore uh -huh. because we're not going back and I know it's hard to deliver on things on the federal level sometimes but that's not even what I'm talking about like we need the state candidates we need the local candidates who are knocking on doors and personally talking to actually stick with the party and like get the shit done. So yeah. I think that is like really where we need to start. 
and I get so angry uh, every year when I do the same thing because I feel I feel hypocritical and I feel passionate about it but me like saying I wish that they would come back and help you too is like it means nothing to someone at the door who might not you know make it the next paycheck or make their rent the next month and I'm saying oh we could totally help you how like how are we gonna help you? <laughs> yeah no I mean I, I I totally agree with you especially in times like right now where you know obviously everybody knows we're in a pandemic and there are you know millions of people who if they don't get relief you know by the end of this month they're gonna end up out on the streets with nowhere to live and you know, very, very little resources, no food to eat, so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I agree with you. And I think one of the biggest takeaways, I don't think we need a whole lot of time to sort of digest that is, you know, just more um, Latino men and, and black men, which, you know, there's some problematic natures there for sure. Uh, homophobia, toxic masculinity, so on and so forth, different episode, but um, mm. you know, who you know, went towards Trump, you know, a little bit more than they did in 2016. Um, and you're right. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, you can only continue to knock on somebody's door li- literally and figuratively and say, hey, I need something from you without getting anything in return before they turn to this sort of populist argument that says, hey, these folks aren't doing anything for you. Abandon them. Like, I'm not there yet, but I can totally see how somebody is there. To that end, um, you know, I, I think it's, I don't think it's a secret that I wasn't a so huge fan of Joe Biden during the um, primary process. I actually had to hide that from you. I don't know how well I hit it, um, to be <laughs> honest, but uh, Elizabeth Warren was my preferred candidate followed by uh, Kamala Harris. But um, I know you had a little bit of a tussle, I guess, trying to figure out if you wanted to to work directly um, in furtherance of the Biden campaign. And where did you end up landing on that? And just what was your process and, and how you came to that decision? So I also was an Elizabeth Warren fan. Um, I definitely didn't hide it. I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> um, I don't think any of y'all really did, to be honest. It's fine. No. I was just like, just don't tweet about it. <laughs> exactly. We had our hush-hush conversation. Um, I don't think he was a lot of people's first choice. Uh, I So I had fully planned on working on the campaign as an organizer um, right out of college. I made a list in order of happiness I would have on working on each person's campaign uh, and Joe Biden was at the bottom and he was actually on my I will not work for this person Um, just in the mentality that I had which was different you know back in March or April than it was in July Um, and that was kind of a a point of privilege for me to be like oh I'm just not going to work for Joe Biden because he doesn't meet my standards um, but I had skills that I could bring to the table, you know, to get shit done, um, and get Trump out of office in November. So come July, I was like, I, can't, I really can't do this. Yeah. I can't work for Joe Biden. Uh, and then come September, I was on Joe Biden's payroll. So I couldn't sit out anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was working in Wisconsin. I was doing ops work. So I was not an organizer, which I felt personally better about. Um, because I could kind of be in the background, do the hard data work. I was doing HR stuff. Um, HR and operations should not be in one department, but it is. Uh, <laughs> but I just decided, you know, I, I've got to do it. I can't sit this out. You know, the classic argument of this is the most important election. And it was, and it still is. We're not done. Um, 
but I I used to joke that I didn't trust people who came on from his like primaries into like the general because I was like out of all of the people who are running like why would you have <laughs> Joe Biden X. in the primary um but everyone I worked with was way farther left than the candidate and I thought that was so interesting other than the people from his primary but even in organizing core people I had volunteered with in other political organizations and then on Joe Biden's campaign he was most people's third fourth choice and most people we're young, most of us were under the age of 28, 30 years old. You know, most of us were Bernie supporters, Warren supporters, Kamala supporters beforehand. Um, and we just kind of saw where the chips fell and they might not have been, you know, where we wanted them to fall or anywhere near, but we knew like what the repercussions were if we didn't fall in line. Yeah. It sucks. But we did what we had to do. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sort of like step 17 of a thousand and, um, restoring some sense of I don't even want to say restoring some sense of the American dream because I'm not sure it's ever existed for some people um and and so um we do have a president I like now regardless of what you know 60 percent of right-wing conspiracy theorists believe um obviously a vice president-elect Kamala Harris very excited we're finally gonna have a a woman um we should have had a woman as president four years ago but anyway I'll get over it eventually uh <laughs> <laughs> you know all that being said, it's sort of like, you know, a lot of people are somewhat starting to switch to the conversation around, well, what kind of issues do we organize around and, and what are some of the priorities or focuses, particularly in case we don't win both Senate seats in Georgia, it definitely, you know, marginalizes a bit what we can accomplish. Um, for, say, you know, we end up with split Senate races, Warnock wins and Allsop loses, for example. You know, what, what do you think in order to move forward with the progressive agenda in some aspects, you know, what should be the focus of community organizers and activists in these first two years of a Biden administration? Um, I don't want to say the classic, like, let's look at what we did wrong because we seem to do that every two to four years and we yeah. still don't, don't do learn the right lessons. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we should talk about messaging and unification. Um, if you kind of look at what happened in Florida where candidates who ran on the $15 minimum wage won and mm -hmm. the party as a whole statewide did not accept that and they lost. And I think if we, I guess use the right words and the nuance and whatever people need to hear to get what we want across, you know, so maybe you don't talk about it as a $15 minimum wage, but you, you know, meet someone at the door and you talk about how their hourly wage isn't covering what they need it to cover. Uh -huh. You know, don't call it the Democratic Party wage, whatever. Um, and you just kind of like meet people where they are in their head and go from there, I think is really important. And I really, really think we need to just start only pushing young candidates. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I, if, I just, I can't get behind the idea that we're accepting that we have most of our country in the Senate, in the House, run by people who are like 60 plus who've been in, in power for like 30, 40 years. I just, I think everybody just like wants to get rid of Nancy Pelosi. I yes. think like people should accept that and like Chuck Schumer, like, we yes. can still hold on to the seats. Like that's not the problem, <laughs> Yeah. but like getting new 
ideas in power because like those, those people are just holding on to power like 80 years old like if we accept a minimum age to get into office why can't we accept a maximum age no i think i digress but no no you're good <laughs> No, I mean, that's very true. I think, you know, and I, you know, folks would try to come out and say part of that is, is a just, I, I wouldn't agree, oh, I agree with that or agree with that to that extent. Like you said, there's yeah. minimum ages to do certain things, you know, at a certain point, you just kind of s- slow down. I mean, I, you know, we saw that and funny thing is 40 years ago when Reagan was running for president, he was 69 and that was a huge, you know, point of contention and conversation in the 1980 election. Um, and now it's irrefutable that he had Alzheimer's at the end of his presidential term <laughs> and that Nancy Reagan was really president. So do you remember like a couple of years ago, a pharmacist like was all over the news where he was like, I'm filling Alzheimer's prescriptions for congressmen. Yes. And it's just like glossed <laughs> over like and, and maybe it's not an age limit thing. Like maybe we should make it term limits. So then it's not mm. really ageist and you are always recycling people out and you don't have someone who's in there for 30, 40 years like. I agree it's like a slippery slope to make like a, a minimum age, maximum age. Like some people can last longer than others in the head, but right. you know, it's just, I'm tired of the same people representing me now and will be representing me in 20, 30 years. Yeah. I mean, that's utterly ridiculous. You, you know, folks have gone three generations sometimes in these positions of power. Like when you're doing that, you, you just very clearly do not have a pulse on your district or the nation. Like you just, you just can't, it's not possible. You're not even com- yeah. You're not even coming back to your state anymore. Like you're, yeah. as they say, like the Washington cronies and like the swamp, whatever, but like you're, you literally have no connection back to your state except for asking for money and like maybe one bill that gets passed every four to eight years. That's it. Yeah, it's it's incredibly troublesome. I want to go back to one point you made about Pelosi and Schumer and lead, you know, moving on from sort of that traditional establishment democratic leadership. Number one, I think both of them need to take a lot of responsibility for democratic electoral failures, if not all of them. You two are the leaders of the party. Um, you go around mm-hmm. selecting and recruiting candidates and writing checks. And so if the money's not there or the messaging is bad, like that's your fault. Somebody needs to take the blame. But to that end, you know, I have heard a lot of conversation and I do agree with it that to the two primary Democratic leaders, you know, now Joe Biden obviously is going to be in that spot, but Pelosi and Schumer leading up until then come from New York and San Francisco. Um, do you think that's problematic? And if so, you know, what's the what's the sort of first step to change of that? I mean, not necessarily, you know, hey, let's pick some folks from the Midwest, but, you know, um, how do we combat the coastal elite sort of trope if we have coastal elites running in the party? Yeah. Um, I, w- I mean, I wish I had like a real answer because I totally agree, especially as a Democrat in the South. Um, it's just, it's really hard to talk to working class people who live in rural Georgia, even live in Atlanta and be like, this is the party that represents you run by these millionaires in New York and San Francisco, you know? Yeah. And like that have no real, like I know what you went through kind of um, even story to tell. And I think that also comes with like being in politics for 40 years. Like maybe they did have that story 40 years ago, but you can't run on it anymore. Like you, you've disconnected from it at that point. Um, so I would say, I guess you can, like we could try to run people from Georgia or from the Midwest, from Arizona, things like that. I, I think right now, like what we saw with Georgia, it's such a 
flip floppy state right now because it's so purple that I think that can be hard to do. But like, I think if we look at Stacey Abrams and I'm not erasing any of the work that the organizers did on the ground, the other groups did on the ground, black youth and black women that delivered in Georgia, but just like focusing on what Stacey Abrams did. If we can look at what she did in 2018 and what she made happen between 2018 and 2020, if we take that to the DNC level and not just at the Georgia level and we like actually form a real ground game, I don't think that's gonna be a problem. Like if we spread that out over the next 10 years, it's not just gonna be New York and San Francisco that deliver for us or, or California and New York. You know, we're gonna be able to maintain Georgia as blue. We're gonna be able to maintain Arizona, things like that. If you actually go out, <laughs> knock doors, register voters, and deliver on the promises. And so I think changing the ground game is the only way that we can maintain these flip floppy states, whatever you wanna call them, and therefore get candidates out of them that know the people, speak to the people, kind of erase that elitist idea, despite us still being the working class party. Um, right. in numbers, but not really at all at the yeah. same time. <laughs> It's it's interesting, you know. It, it feels like the Republicans have at least an easier, cohesive message to run around. It doesn't hold up against any logical fallacies, but you know, you can go around and say small taxes, big government, and you know, government wants to tell you what to do and rile up people's emotions and get votes. And you know, I agree. We've just failed from a messaging and organizing perspective. I mean, we're getting out organized in general from right versus left, not just Republican versus Democrat, but I mean, you know, then I saw I was watching a documentary one day actually where um, the lady actually bought a flyer and said, uh, you know, if you're food scarce, you know, you can come talk to the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And, um, you know, like th th those are those are holes that government or established left leaning organizations, you know, should should be filling. Um, you mentioned organizing, you mentioned messaging you know, going out and having conversations. If you had to pick one more thing that you would sort of like put in action on the first day is like, we're going to make you chair of the Democratic National Committee. We're going to change our messaging. We're going to go out and we're going to actually organize year round. What would be the last thing you'd prioritize? I would probably pick one issue. Hmm. I would make a healthcare because I want to say the Green New Deal as me being someone who like freaking loves the earth and everything about it and like wants to maintain it but if we literally like don't have health care and don't have healthy people it doesn't to me really matter yeah um what's going on around us outside which i think they go hand in hand but i digress i would choose one issue <laughs> health care and i would just put my foot down I, i'd say i'd literally be like a authoritarian fall in line we're getting this done because people's lives are on the line mm. and we we just talk around health care all the time oh we need it oh you know these people are dying especially right now in a pandemic like this is the time that we should be pushing yeah. this forward we learned like with healthcare tied to employment, so many people are unemployed right now and don't have healthcare. Like this is the time to message to people. Yeah. You need socialized healthcare. We yeah. need universal healthcare. And we have this like the step up right now. Like we should be using this time, but we're not. Yeah. And people just say like, oh, we're not gonna have healthcare within our lifetime. Because we're not putting our foot down. We're not just shame. saying like 
yeah oh, I'm also shit. getting really riled up because I'm about to be off my parents insurance and I don't know what the heck I'm gonna do <laughs> how'd you add until 25 26 that's only a couple years away oh well you got to <laughs> what happened by then trust me well we're not gonna have universal health care in three years <laughs> I know, I'm sorry I'm trying to be like overly optimistic here about the future of this country um yeah I'd love to be surprised I don't see it happening sorry um <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, there's there's nothing but accuracy in that. I mean, like, look, I, even you can make an appeal to the most right-leaning person on healthcare. Right? Like, government's most basic responsibility is to ensure the, the security of its citizens. And you talk about security is more like life or death, right? In in no aspect should anyone not be able to have a life-saving life-saving procedure, or access to medicine they need to live. Like, if any, even the smallest government of person. It's like, okay, prevent domestic terrorist attacks and make sure people don't die from not being able to afford medicine. Like, um, yeah. you got a better argument for eliminating the Department of Education than you do for not <laughs> having health care. Um, and I get the arguments against Obamacare. It's not the best thing. But the whole, like, repeal Obamacare and don't replace it, like, it, I just, I can't understand that. And we just need to maintain it until we get something better and it's so hard to do when things get tacked on to bills and you have to shake hands with people to you know get what you want and it's just politics is corrupt i'm not jaded i'm only 22 i promise <laughs> <laughs> i'm jaded it's fine um they've literally had a decade to put something uh up in its place too and haven't which shows you they have no interest in actually um putting a replacement to obamacare they just hate it because it came from obama um yesterday i got into a very long uh twitter conversations with people who were just adamant that you know you can't be pro-choice um and a christian it was good conversations i was just actually arguing with people and just you know annihilating their um crappy arguments <laughs> but what we've unfortunately done is i think tied you know, like women's healthcare and access to the quality of healthcare that they have to this one singular social, you know, cultural issue. Um, and yes, in terms to sort of political and policy measures, but also just in general, um, because democratic politics is still very much so the, the good old boys um, club. We just decided to let some, some women of privilege in there as well. Um, but I guess what does it mean to support and protect women within like organizing spaces, uh, in your opinion? Um, I would say just first and foremost, it sounds really cliche, but just listening. Um, experience really is everything. Hmm. And, and not just like experience in your job, experience in your life and what you've gone through and no two experiences are the same. And that's what you bring to the table. I'm never going to know your experience in this country as a black man and you're never going to know my experience as a woman and we can talk to each other as much as we want about those experiences but they will never will never fully understand how you process things and you know how your past experiences impact but you can listen you know and you can say like just <laughs> I, I like I can't say enough how important that is because oftentimes people don't listen and you just kind of get glossed over and that's half the population. That's half the population's experience. That's a super big part of the electorate. Just all of it is, I don't know, really important. Um, and 
in terms of protecting women, that question to me was really interesting, um, mostly because when people talk about that, like, like how can men protect women? And who are men protecting women from? Other men, <laughs> like, yeah. um, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, that. That takes a lot of just like deep conversations and introspection, both within yourself and your friend groups and things like that. Cause like, it might not be you, but it's probably your buddy, you know, that is cracking a joke that the woman doesn't find funny or, you know, kind of a little iffy at a club one night and you might not say anything, but because it doesn't impact you, but it does impact you and it impacts all women. It impacts all men. Um, it might not be all men in quotation marks, but it's enough to make women uncomfortable, you know, across the board. Um, and that's not just, you know, out in a club that's in the workplace. And I think it's really important that half the population understands <laughs> who the other half, or at least tries to. Um, yeah. I mean, I never like, I don't prescribe to the whole, like, Oh, not all men thing. It's like when I'm, when I'm railing against racism, I don't say not all white people, like clearly, you know, you're not included in that. Clearly Miss Jennifer knows she's not included in that. Shout out to Jennifer. Um, you know, and it's just like, and I, I think it's appropriate to say like, I, don't, I mean, I wouldn't say like men are trash. I'm also not going to attack anybody who says men are trash. And I think like what people need to understand is that the generalization of men when there are being criticism and critiques offered one are very valid. And then two, because like there's a disproportional <clears throat> sort of element of the ways in which men exercise patriarchy, right? If, 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 if we say women are, some women are being manipulative and whatever, that doesn't compare to the amount of women who die from domestic abuse or violence. It doesn't compare to sexual assault. So it's, it's, that is why it's okay to say men are trash and why it's not okay to say women are trash um, because there are just disproportionate outcomes and consequences to the very, you know, the deepest and most dark aspects of um, sort of gender generalizations, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I'm sorry, I wanted to frame that for like folks who, you know, sort of, you know, Every time I look at a controversial thing on social media, it's like, well, not all men. And it's just like, dude, shut up. Um, well, it's also like we we live in a society that like is was made for men, just like it was made for mm -hmm. white people, you know. And you can be a great man, you could still benefit from mm -hmm. the society that was made to benefit you, you know. And you, <laughs> I just you can be a wonderful person and you're still just <laughs> constantly you know doing the wrong thing and it might not be the wrong thing to you but like i said earlier it can be the wrong thing to somebody else and i think back to what i said listening and learning that you know what you thought was right might not actually be right and starting there and then you can get into all of the pay differences and actually learning to talk about your salaries oh, in the man. workplace and <laughs> that I, I just think everything I know everyone should always share their salary yeah that should just be upfront it's a ploy I agree and all companies should post salary ranges when they uh <laughs> when they've got openings but yes. we, can oh, go God, down. Yes. <laughs> we can go down lots of very valid rabbit holes um you know, I, I, I want to come back to something you mentioned at the beginning as far as just being a real sort of advocate for for climate and nature and whatnot. Um, and actually, 
you and a lot of other folks who were in that cohort uh, in the summer of 2019 actually sort of encouraged and inspired me to, you know, be more outdoors and nature centric. Like it was a big part of, you know, I guess who I was when I was a little bit younger and you start, you know, working and get jaded and so on and so forth. And it's like, I'm just gonna sit on the couch instead of go for a hike. Um, but uh, to that, to that end, I guess like being mindful of whether or not, you know, you're giving more back to the earth than what you're taking away. Is that something like you very legitimately and intentionally think about? And if so, you know, like what sort of things have you adopted in your lifestyle to make sure you are actually giving more back to this place that we've been, you know, blessed with and taken away from it? Yeah, so I think growing up, I was always like a classic outdoor kid. I was never inside. Uh, when I moved to Germany, that's really where I kind of started to understand the way I wanted government to be involved in kind of helping regulate or promoting even just like green spaces, recycling, composting, you know, natural like resources and production and things like that. Um, and that was kind of where I started to see the benefit of it and how nature isn't just going to hike a mountain or going to a lake, you know, it's, it's your yard it's the trees on the sidewalk and I think that mindset for me as that started to grow really helped me um both in my personal life where I was like I'm really you know anxious right now I'm going to go for a walk and just going for a walk on the sidewalk was enough for me um but also to really understand that it's a privilege to get to use these natural resources and I don't have the same access that my parents had you know maybe 50 years ago and that's going to be the same for the generation behind me like the glaciers are melting you know they're not going to see the same things I saw the the sea levels are rising the coral reefs are getting bleached you know <laughs> not to be a negative Nancy but like that's happening um and I think that's kind of why I started to get into the environmental justice idea framework with every person has the right to go outside, breathe fresh air, drink clean water, access to a green space, because I saw that the impact that it had on me and how it calms me down, you know, it gives me a break, even if it's just 10 minutes on a park bench. Hmm. And I think that we don't talk about that enough. And when we talk about the environment, we talk about cutting down trees or like, the Arctic Reserve, you know, and those are very important things, but we also need to talk about the neighborhoods that are breathing polluted air and don't have a tree, you know, <laughs> or like a green space, um, because that takes a toll. And on both like your physical health, mental health, I remember in college, I lived really close to this chicken factory and you could smell it in the air. It was really bad. We like in the county, we had the lowest life expectancy in that area. Wow. And I was there for two years and I could tell the impact that it had on my asthma. Yeah. And there were families there that were there for generations, you know, like <laughs> things like that is, is really effed up. Yeah. And I, I think that's where I started to get passionate. So in my life, in my lifestyle choices, um, I try to take the bus, <laughs> you know, uh, as much as possible is a lot easier in Europe than it is in America. That's for sure. Um, public transportation in general. 
I stopped eating meat. I hate to be that like, I'm a vegetarian kind of person. <laughs> um, but I did it for environmental reasons. I can't even say it was like for the cows, but <laughs> that came later. They're very cute. I do find them very cute. That's fair. <laughs> um, but I just saw that the impact that animal agriculture has and the food production system is so inefficient. We waste like 40% of the food yeah. that we create. And, you know, so much of our country is going hungry and lives in food deserts and doesn't even have access. So I, I am just one person, but it starts with one person. And I firmly believe that. So I try to do things like that. Um, try not to buy fast fashion. I'm not very rich. Mm. <laughs> I don't have yeah. a lot of money in my bank account, but um, I thrift when I can and I don't, I try not to buy brand new just because it's so important. Um, I will say I am guilty of driving everywhere. I've been like driving across the country right now. <laughs> um, when you live in a country that only has roads for cars and no train system, really, what are you going to do? But I think I would say that's pretty much lifestyle wise and, and why I'm mindful of it. I just, it behind healthcare, it's like the most important thing to me. And yeah. I think it should be the most important thing to everybody not to be a doomsday person, but like we only have this one planet and I mean, yeah, <laughs> if, we, if we treat it like shit, then we're not going to have it for very long. <laughs> no, that's facts. I mean, that's not doomsday. We've ruined the planet and everything's going out of whack and there's not a whole lot of time turning around. Um, but to be more positive, right? There's, um, <laughs> uh, there's a 14 year old girl who wants to manage a presidential campaign one day, 20 years from now. Both her parents are Trump supporters and they watch Fox News all day what would you tell her? What advice would you give her? Girl, I was in your shoes because that sounds exactly like my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> it still is. <laughs> um, what would I tell her for the campaign? Yeah. Or what would I tell her just to prepare yourself for? <laughs> um, both. Okay. Um, prepare yourself for your morals and everything to be challenged because you can be a totally fantastic person and you can go in with the best intention and the system that we have set up is not meant for you. Mm. And I think, I mean, that's something that we can say we need to look at and we need to do, but with the people in power to make those changes, like they're not going to take away their own power. Mm. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of, be steadfast and hold on to as much of yourself as you can because that can easily be removed from you. Um, for the campaign, <laughs> hire diverse staff and like actually mean it and actually listen to them. Um, I've seen plenty of times where it's all organizers who are people of color and then at the higher levels, it's all white people and they don't even listen to their organizers. So it's one thing to hire. Yeah. It's another thing to actually listen and implement. And you, you, I mean, you taught me that <laughs> yourself, and then I had to experience it. Um, I try to tell you all the truth. Uh. <laughs> you do. <laughs> but I think that's really important. Um, and it's something that we should be doing right now, but we're not. Maybe one day. Um, exactly. Um, and knock on the doors yourself. Candidates yes. 100% have to knock on the doors themselves. Yes, everyone, even the campaign manager should knock doors every now and then. Yes, agreed. <clears throat> um, let's close with a little rapid fire. Favorite place you've ever traveled? Sardinia, Italy. Ooh, 
I fancy Florence, so I, I can give it I've actually never been to Florence. But Amazing place. It's, it's so beautiful. It was the first time I ever saw clear water. Oh, yeah, in America, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> jackfruit or eggplant? Eggplant. Yeah? I don't really care for jackfruit anymore. I started making sweet potato barbecue sandwiches instead of jackfruit barbecue sandwiches. Mm. Shred it, you grate it. Fry it in the pan so it's crispy, and then you toss in the spices and the barbecue sauce. Can't tell a difference. I'm gonna well, try honestly, that. I don't, I don't remember what meat tastes like, but I don't think you can tell a difference. <laughs> no, that's good. You're inspiring. I need to cut back on my meat consumption. Um, <laughs> it's January 20th, 2025, noon Eastern. Who do you want to be president? Hmm. Well, Elizabeth Warren's going to be too old for me, so. <laughs> no more septuagenarians after this. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, hmm. I think I'm going to be really cliche and very Georgian and say Stacey Abrams, but she's never going to go for that. So it's just a pipe dream. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she'll like run the campaign. Maybe. I don't Maybe know. Vice president? I, I think we should abolish the presidency. Oh, man. Think... Why are you doing this at the end? I want to dive into that one. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll go with Stacey Abrams. We'll go with Stacey. Maybe she'll go governor in 22 and then just go straight to the White House. I think that's fair. good enough for me. Karis, yeah. thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Take care. See you next time. Hope See you next time.